There's a question for us this morning. It was originally directed toward Esther, a young Jewish woman in the ancient Near East, who, as Carla mentioned, unexpectedly through a variety of circumstances and we almost might say sacred coincidences, becomes queen of Persia. The question is asked by her cousin, a Jewish man, a faithful Jewish man named Mordecai. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows? Let's allow that that question to hover over our sanctuary for just a moment this morning, may we? Let us wonder, why are you here today? Why have you made your way into this place? Maybe you're here because you're always here and you cannot imagine not being in church. I'm a, I'm a church kid. I was born a preacher's kid. I was born practically in the church. I think I was six days old the first time I went. I can't imagine not going to church even if I wasn't a pastor. I would always be in worship on a, on a Sunday morning. Or, or perhaps some of you are here as guests for the first time. You've come to see if this is a church that you might want to become a part of. Or perhaps, dare I say this, some of you have come because you felt a nudge, a gentle push from the spirit, from the universe, because you're looking for something sacred, something, something holy, for some purpose in life. So we're asking ourselves this morning, for such a time as this, where are you needed most? Where is the spirit? Where is the universe? Where is God calling you to be, to give your life? For some task? Are you being called for some gigantic thing? Some place where you'll be seen on the worldwide stage or, or maybe Kansas City anyway or maybe in your neighborhood but maybe? Or are you being called simply to give your heart to someone who needs to experience love just in the quiet and in the silence for such a time as this? My friend and colleague in ministry, Fred Craddock, is now in the resurrection But I recall a sermon I heard from him many, many years ago when he confessed that right after he got out of seminary and he got his first pulpit, he dreamed of of literally giving his life, of giving himself up for God, of doing some grand, wonderful thing that everyone would remember. They'd they'd build statues. They'd build big, tall statues. You might remember Fred Craddock preached here 10 years ago, and he could barely see over the top of this pulpit. He's a little short guy, but he wanted to see this big statue that would say, Remember Fred. He gave his life for everyone. Instead, he said in that sermon... In a soft voice, my life has been given instead just a sip here, a sip there, a sip at a time. I recall the first time I I met this gentle soul. He just delivered a a powerful sermon at an event near the seminary I was attending. After the crowd faded away, I, I took a copy of his textbook that we were reading in my preaching class up to the front, and I asked him, could could you sign this for me, Dr. Craddock? And he said, sure, be glad to. I handed it over. And he said, tell me your name. I said, my name is Glenn. He said, Glenn, tell me about your school. What, what, are, you, what are you majoring in? What do you want to do when you get out of seminary? I said, well, I, I love being a youth minister, but I'm enjoying this class on preaching. He handed this, the book back to me. He said, read this and you'll do well. <laughs> Such a sweet man. Just a sip. No fanfare. I was a nobody from nowhere, but he treated me like I was the most important person in the room. It was a quiet moment, but in that time, he gave a gift of his attention to me. Where in the world are you needed? For such a time as this, where are you called to go? Are you called to do something big? Then go do it. If you're called simply to hold the hand of the person you're sitting next to, so that she knows, so that he knows, you love her, you love him. 
These questions are, are really at the heart of the biblical story that we'll tell today. They're spoken toward this young queen, a woman who was dragged away from her family into a situation against her will, but now must make the courageous choice to decide whether or not she will help her people. Who knows? Who knows, Mordecai wonders. Perhaps that's why you're here now. These were faithful Jews living in Persia during the reign of Xerxes. The question is addressed to his young cousin Esther, who in an amazing twist of all these coincidences has become the queen. The scripture is set in history, but it's told like a fairy tale. It's told in big, exaggerated kind of, of language. It, says, it begins in chapter 1, when Xerxes was the king of Persia, he ruled from India in the east to Ethiopia in the southwest. Now historians will tell you that Xerxes never ruled that large of an area, but the storyteller doesn't care. He wants to get your attention. He wants you to pay attention to this, this story. It kind of begins like, once upon a time there was this great king who had all this wealth and all this power, and what does he do with it? Well, he throws a big party. The very next verse at the beginning of of the story says that he threw a party for six months. It really was an abuse of his excess of wealth and, and power. And more than that, it was just a royal stag party. Everybody who was there was a man. There were no women invited, of course. Well, at the end of this six month long uh, event, he decides he wants to really show off his power and really show off his property, and he invites his queen, his first queen. Her name was Vashti invites Queen Vashti to come out and put on a show for, for the boys, wearing nothing more than just her crown. But Vashti, in the first courageous act in this story, says, no, I will not. Now, she can be punished. She can be killed. She's banished, though. Xerxes shows some grace and banishes her from the kingdom forever and sends her away. Well, after she is gone, there, a, a contest is held of sorts. Beautiful young women from all over Persia are brought before the king so he can choose a new queen. You can read the story. It's pretty sordid. As you read it, you can fill in the blanks about what really was going on. I had this experience as I read through the book of Esther this week, thinking it's all so sad and, frankly, so real in light of the stories that are dominating our, our, our news these days. It just points out that we still have so much to learn, so much. Well, this young woman named Esther, this young Jewish woman, catches the, the, the king's eye. She's the one that he wants as his new queen. But Mordecai, her, her cousin, warns and says, you want to be very careful. Don't tell him that you're Jewish. Keep your, keep your identity separate so he's not aware. Don't let him know. She has no real choice in the matter, but she shows a quiet dignity and a, and a humble grace as she becomes the queen. Well, the story moves forward with the notice of a man named Haman. Haman hates Mordecai. Haman, for whatever reason, thinks that Mordecai doesn't show him the kind of respect, the proper respect that he deserves and and should receive. And so Haman comes up with this plot to have Mordecai put to death. And not only that, he knows that Mordecai is a Jew. And to make himself really show show off as a very strong man in the court of Xerxes, he's not only going to kill Mordecai, he's going to kill all of the Jews. He's plotting to kill them, to kill them all. At this point, Mordecai learns of his fate the fate of their people, and he goes to his, his cousin, Queen Esther, and he sees that she's in a place where she can save her people. The request comes to her to do something, but she responds back to Mordecai through message, I, I can't do this. Are you aware anyone goes before the king without permission or an invitation from the king will be killed? I can't do this. She's afraid for her life, and we can't blame her, really. 
But then Mordecai writes back that famous question, who is to say, who knows, maybe you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You could almost feel it, couldn't you? As Carla read the story, you can you could almost sense that she stands in her royal chamber. She she stands tall, strong, gracious, humble, and ready. She hears the question echoing through her chambers, and she says, I will go. If I perish, I perish. Great courage in the face even of death. You know, the Bible talks about courage quite a bit. Moses, at the end of his life, as he's issuing them into the promised land, stands on the other side of the Jordan as they're moving across and preaches to them and reminds them that although he cannot go with them, they can be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, he says, or be in dread, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. God will not forsake you. Even if they don't feel it, even if they're not feeling especially religious or spiritual on that particular day, he wants them to know that God will be with them always. You're not alone. I'm reading a new book by, by Gil Rendell. He's a, a church consultant. He writes to pastors and to church leaders on how to, to move our, our congregations into the new era that is before us, a new era that no one really knows quite for sure what to do next. And there's a lot of anxiety in the church. And there's a lot of anxiety among preachers too. But listen to his words. The quiet courage in an anxious time comes from the leader who more simply keeps an eye on the purpose and who quietly says to those about, keep moving. Do you hear what he's saying? Courage doesn't come so much from the rousing speech and the the loud voice. It comes from those who quietly encourage us to keep moving, to move forward. Is there something in your life that you're needing to face? but you're afraid? Is there some place in the world that needs you now in this moment, but fear is holding you back from going there? Courage is most often found, as I said, not in the rousing, stirring voice, but in the quiet willingness to go forward, to keep moving. Howard Thurman was the first African-American dean of, of the chapel at Boston University. He attributed his ability when he was there to face all the racism that, that came at him. And this is from 50 or 60 years ago. He attributed his ability to face all of that to the strength of his grandmother, a former slave, a woman who heard in church simple words that she whispered over and over again to her young grandson, you are somebody, you are somebody, you are somebody. Hers for him was the voice of God. When the racism came at him, when the prejudice overwhelmed him, he could hear his mother's voice and he found the courage to keep moving. To move forward. Your willingness to move forward in life, no matter what time it is for you, is in truth a response to the call of God upon you, a call upon God to you to bring your gifts, whatever they may be. Uh, there's a, there was a church in, I think it was in North Carolina, that had a drama troupe, and they decided to put on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol for their part of their Advent celebration. So the Saturday before Christmas... All the church was invited to come to see the play. The social hall was transformed into a theater. And they kind of chuckled, the church members did, when they came in because they could see that the one who was going to play Scrooge was the kindest, most gracious, gentlest man in the congregation. And yet he threw himself into the part. He just, he uttered those bah humbugs of anger and ferociousness. And boy, everybody was kind of taken aback at how good he was at this role. But then as the play progressed, it came towards the end. And Scrooge, as you know, the story has been transformed. It's Christmas Day. He opens his window. He calls out to anyone who will listen, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas to everyone. 
And then he looks and sees an imaginary boy on the other side of the stage, and he says, you, you boy, you over there, come over here, I've got something wonderful for you to do. And then an amazing thing happens. A little six-year-old boy, seated with his mom and dad on the front row, he comes walking right over, and he comes right, walks up on the stage and, and just stands there next to Mr. Scrooge. The audience doesn't know what to do. Scrooge, the man playing Scrooge, isn't quite sure what does he do with this little boy. And then a brilliant idea comes to mind. He gets down on a knee, puts his arm around that little guy, and he says, yes, you, you were the one. You were the boy I was calling. We'll do something wonderful together. And then he takes him back to the seat where mom and dad are waiting. That little boy responded out of hope. That little boy responded to a call that said, yes, you've got something in your soul, in your life. You can do something wonderful. For such a time as this, that little boy responded out of, out of hope, the hope of something new being made in the world. You know, Brene Brown says that courage is found when hope is real. She notes that hope grows from the struggle. Hope is a way of thinking, she says. Hope is learned. One of the issues she points out for families these days, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, is the failure to allow kids to struggle. When they're shielded from the difficulties, we make it nearly impossible for them to to discover hope. If we're always following our children into the arena, keeping them safe, hushing the critics, assuring their victory, making sure they get a trophy, then they'll never face the struggles they need to to find the hope that will guide them in the adult lives that they're about to live. Esther risks everything to enter into the struggle. And she's brilliant in the way she does it. We don't have time to tell the whole story, but suffice to say, she's the exact opposite of Xerxes in every way. She's quiet, strong, humble. She takes the tables of hate and she turns them. Haman is defeated. The people of Israel are saved. You know, the book of Esther, by the way, is, a, is the answer to a trivia question. Name the one book in the Bible where God is not mentioned at all. It is, of course, the the book of Esther. You're welcome. You can use that anytime you want to with your friends and neighbors. But I would suggest to you that, that God is there in between the lines, in the struggle, in the facing of whatever the issue might be, in the willingness to give our lives, even though we might be afraid and overwhelmed by fear and anxiety. It's in the struggle where God's Spirit God's presence is felt and made real. Allow me, if I may, as we close, to suggest that perhaps one of the most difficult struggles any of us will ever face is found found in the call to forgive. I cannot count the number of times in my ministry someone has said to me at the beginning or sometimes at the end of a conversation, I will not forgive her ever. I cannot forgive him, no. And yet, the act of forgiveness almost always sets two people free. Mark Iaconelli tells a story about a friend of his named James, who was the director of a group called Restorative Justice. James works with prisoners and inmates to help them find a new life, along with the victims of their crime. One day there was a man driving down the street. He was an accountant. He was on his way to work when his cell phone went off. 
He had one hand on the wheel, and he continued to look down the road as he was driving, but he checked his coat pocket to see if he could find the phone. It wasn't there where it would normally be. He reached over, keeping his eye on the street, hand on the wheel, looked over on the, on the passenger seat to find the phone. Not there. Looked in the cup holders. It's not there either. Still driving carefully down the road. Changed hands, checked in the pocket of the door. No, no phone there. Still, it was ringing and ringing, and he wondered to himself, is it my wife? Is it one of the kids? Is there an issue? Maybe it's my boss. I need to find the phone. And so carefully checking the traffic, making sure everything was clear, he then looked down. Maybe you've done this. I'm guilty. Too many of us, I'm sure. He looked down, found the phone, and in that moment there was a terrible thud. And then another. And he saw a man's face flash against the windshield as the man rolled over the top of his car. The man was severely injured. The accountant, the driver, was taken to jail. The victim fell into a coma. For a month, his young wife and their six-year-old son came to visit him, and then one day the doctors met with her and said, it's time to make a hard decision. And life support was disconnected. She walked out into the hallway. Waiting for her there was a young police officer. In a quiet voice, he said, the driver is being prosecuted for manslaughter. She said, how is he doing? The officer said, not well. He wants to take his life. She said, take me to see him. I'd like to talk to him. The officer said, no, we we cannot. She said, yes, you will. Take me now. I want to see him. They drove in silence to the prison. They were brought into the room where prisoners can meet with family members and friends. They sat very close to each other, their, their knees almost touching. She leaned in so she could see his face, and she said, I want to tell you about my husband the way he loved and lived, the dreams and the hopes that he had, the way he he cared for our son. It took her many minutes to get through all of this. She had to stop and cry several times. Finally, she took a deep breath. She exhaled and she said, tell me, how are you? I, I hear you want to take your life. Is that true? Yes. Don't do it, she said. Too much death already. Don't do it. At that point, that, the man began to sob uncontrollably and seeing this man with the grief and the fear and the, the regret on his face and the tears pulling down, she reached out and grabbed her around him, around his shoulders and the two of them sat there weeping together. It was a baptism of tears. It was a baptism of grace. Finally, when the sobs stopped, she pushed back away, still holding onto his shoulders and she looked him straight in the eye and she said, it was an accident. James, the man who tells the story, says, She had every right to seek vengeance, to be angry, to scream and to vent. Instead, she chose forgiveness. For such a time as that, she chose grace. For such a time as this, you've been brought to this place, to this point in your life. What what are you waiting for? Is fear holding you back? Is regret causing you to worry Are you uncertain? Is there unresolved anger in your life? What are you called, despite all those things, what are you called to do right now? Right now, what are you called to? To what task has God set you? Whether it's something big and bold that will put you on the front pages or something quiet and small. I can see Ryan back there holding his new little baby. Maybe it's as small and as precious as that. For such a time as this, whether it's big and bold or simple and sweet, The very Spirit of God, maybe silently, quietly, but the very Spirit of God is there right now, nudging you and me forward 
for such a time as this. Amen.